Good morning. Now, this morning we're going to tell you a great story of a relatively peaceful revolution in which a country, almost uniquely in world history, managed over several decades to redistribute land from the rich to the poor, create a middle class, expand suffrage, make significant investment in health and education and build thousands of homes for poor labourers all through a largely democratic movement. But this story has been virtually extinguished from the history books so that its people believe that nothing, only a violent rebellion, could deliver them freedom and prosperity. That country is Ireland. And on Talking Point, we're calling it the Bloodless Revolution, Ireland Before the Rising. In studio, Jennifer Redmond is a lecturer in history in Maynooth University and president of the Women's History Association. Kieran O'Neill lectures in history in Trinity College and he's president of the Society for the study of 19th century Ireland. Colin McGarrett is a PhD candidate in Trinity too and he's an expert on how history has been taught in Irish schools and Dermot Malidi is the author of the definitive biography of John Redmond, the leader of the Irish party after Parnell. Dermot Malidi, will you kick us off please? Am I exaggerating in when I'm listing how much was achieved in Ireland in say the 50 years before the Easter Rising? Thanks Sarah. Well, uh, quite a lot was achieved in Ireland in the, say, 50 years before the Easter Rising. There were about 10 major pieces of legislation which were, which you might say would have been um, carried in any event by virtue simply of the fact that Ireland was in the United Kingdom. These were uh, initiated by British governments. Then there were at least seven major pieces of legislation that were enacted between 1900 and 1916, which were the result of direct initiatives by the Irish party, led, uh, led by John Redmond with John Dillon as the, the deputy leader. So if we take the land first, uh, there were many land acts over that period. Two of them stand out. Uh, one was brought in by the Liberals under William Gladstone, uh, and that was the 1881 Land Act, which effectively began to choke the landlords financially because it set up judicial uh, rent courts, which uh, tenants could go to and get revisions of their rent every 15 years. And these revisions were almost always downward revisions. So effectively, rents were in decline from 1881. The second of these major land acts was the 1903 Wyndham Land, uh, George Wyndham, the Chief Secretary, his land act. And this did something different. It made a, it, it greatly accelerated the process of of uh, transferring land ownership from the landlords to the tenants. By 1903, about 18% of Irish land had been transferred in ownership. This uh, Wyndham's Land Act of 1903 gave that a major boost. And if, if we count that in with a, a succeeding Land Act of 1909, uh, by 1915, 61% of Irish land holdings had been transferred in ownership. So effectively, landlordism was wiped out by peaceful means by massive financial transfers from conservative governments. You know, uh, we could compare this with bloody revolutions which happened elsewhere in Europe, like in Spain and in uh, Russia, which were extremely violent processes of transferring land ownership. In Ireland, it was a peaceful revolution. What it achieved in the end was the creation of a very large rural middle class. And we could uh, hypothesize about how that created stability in Irish uh, society. If, now, there are many negative sides to that, of course, in, as we all know from the 20th century. But one thing it did 
was that Ireland was one of the few uh, countries in Europe which remained a democracy right through the 20th century. And we can attribute a large part of that, I think, to the fact that this uh, middle class was created, this landowning uh, middle class in Ireland. So, Kieran <clears throat> O'Neill, will you maybe tell me a little bit more then about how that enormous change was affected, how the tenants came to own the land that they had previously rented, in some cases at very high rents? Yeah, I mean, I suppose that the, the thing, I mean, Dermot made some really good points about the land re- reform. And I suppose the, the important thing to note is that there isn't, it, you know, it's quite staged, this transfer of land uh, to, to, I suppose, tenant farmers and, and strong farmers, as we call them. Um, so it takes quite a long time. The rent comes down uh, gradually during the late 19th century. And it, I mean, a common misconception in the period is that the government... Uh, which is 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 in Parliament in London is in cahoots in a sense with the landed gentry. So, uh, in actual fact, it's a p- political priority for the for the political class, if you like, working away in in, in Parliament to progressively strip power away from the the landed gentry. And why did they want to do that? Um, well, b- partly because they didn't think they were very good at wielding it, and because they because you've got a a, a, a particular religious configuration in Ireland where you have a majority Catholic tenantry. Uh, being governed at local level, sort of in, in terms of local government and day-to-day sort of presence of, of government in people's lives uh, by a contested uh, landed class. So oh, we have plenty of Catholic landlords across the country, but in general terms, the biggest landowners in Ireland are, of course, either pro- Protestant or, or sometimes Presbyterian. So you have uh, the spectre, if you like, of unfair government where you have um, a, a particularly elite class governing over a tenantry which is of a different religious persuasion. That's very controversial in an Irish context. Uh, further to that, I would say that the, the English government has a, a kind of a modernising, uh, centralising impulse through the 19th century. So they want to, uh, power to be um, consolidated in Dublin Castle and in London. They don't want the landlords to have it. So they're chipping away right from the 1830s, right up to the 1870s and 1880s and 90s at this class and they want to take power away from them. And and that was going on on the, the mainland as well, not just Ireland. Is that a fair description? Yeah, I mean, there are two different political projects. It's, uh, in a sense, the same policy won't work in, in Lancashire as will work in, in Clare. And, you know, it, it's it's uh, a, a different way of governing through the same legislation. Some very interesting work coming out on that um, in the last few years. Yeah. And so... Jennifer, I know at the time, like I have recollections of Michael Davitt and the Land League and all mm. of that. So how effective was that movement? You know, that mm. it wasn't simply just um, the British government wanting say, to be progressive for whatever reasons, mm. but that um, but this policy was being driven by agitation in Ireland and they were being forced into it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, nobody woke up one day and said, wouldn't it be a nice idea to make all of these uh, farmers actual landlords themselves or owners. The extra parliamentary agitation was essential. And uh, Michael Davitt and the Land League, and that was a very democratic kind of organisation. Lots of ordinary people got involved, including women. Uh, They were essential and they tested the limits of the law. They tested the the laws on seditious language, on mass mobilisation gatherings, violent speeches, really stirring people up. And this was a a topic that, of course, spoke to most people's hearts. And sometimes I think they enjoyed the the kind of revelry that went along with this protest. So trampling through fields or breaking down borders between uh, farms that they uh, didn't agree with. This kind of thing was essential. I don't think 
uh, because we saw before, for example, in the era of Isaac Butt, gentle speeches in Parliament or even, you know, um, larger conglomerations of politicians getting together to present petitions. This didn't work. You see it again and again with other uh, movements. The, the movement for suffrage for women is another one where the kind of parliamentary decorum only gets you so far and it really does take the people on the outside of the system as well as those inside the system working together not always on the same agenda but having the same outcome in mind uh, to really make that change happen what would you say was the the social consequence of that transfer of land uh, from the rich to the poor? I mentioned before the tie to suffrage and at this point in time the, the ability to vote um, was tied to land, property, wealth. So the more people who had land, the more people who could vote, which is why you have by the turn of the 20th century people like Yeats kind of um, sneering a little bit at the new Catholic uh, strong farmers, shopkeepers, middle class who are emboldened, who have a vote, who have a voice, who have strong strong representatives like John Redmond uh, representing their interests in Parliament, uh, more and more people can vote. So actually some people see this as a very conservative revolution in that if you give people something to fight for, but it is land and holdings, it does actually make them settle down a bit after you've given it to them, yeah, which and is interesting. Dermot, wasn't that in a way the Thatcherite policy of uh, allowing people to buy uh, their local authority homes and then they'd houses. never strike Absolutely, again? Absolutely, yeah. 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 I mean, if we're talking about the decade between 1900 and 1910, during that whole decade, there was no realistic chance of a British government introducing a home rule measure. So the party had to focus on other things which would improve the lives of the people. And, uh, and actually, so they, sorry, Dermot, yeah. on that, what do you think was the priority of the Irish party that time? Was it home rule or was it... Improving oh, well, the overriding priority was home rule. There's right. no question about that. But it's just that when, well, Let's say if we leave out the decade of the 1890s when the party was split, when Redmond took over as leader of the reunited party in 1900, the Tories were midway through a 10-year period of government. They were re-elected in 1900. They went out of power in 1905. During those five years, all of the short-term focus of the Irish party was on winning land reform, winning the Land Purchase Act. And that's what... Uh, came to fruition in the Wyndham Land Act, 1903. Um, it was only when the Liberals got there, uh, won the second election in 1910, that Redmond got the balance of power and then Home Rule itself became practical politics. But in the meantime, Redmond had to come back, uh, and I shouldn't just be saying Redmond alone, but re- the leadership of the Irish party had to come back to the people who elected them, uh, You know, and there was nobody else in the field in Irish electoral politics. Um, they had to uh, come back every year and kind of try to, if you like, justify their presence at Westminster and say, uh, well, and certain years uh, stood out as better than others. The uh, 1906 uh, stood out because they got the Labourers Act, which was a, a, a brilliant piece of legislation. And what did that do? Well, it, it, it increased the number of labourers' cottages from 17,000, uh, which had been built since the uh, since Parnell had got a similar act done, but that was over 20 years previously. And, this and was it, it raised that number of cottages from 17,000 to 45,000 within seven years. And if you take in, say, an average family size of maybe four or five uh, children, you're looking at about a quarter of a million people being uh, positively impacted by being given salubrious homes to live in and an acre to make the labourer self-sufficient. 
uh, Kieran McKay, a, a social historian, talks about this as a social revolution. It wiped out cholera and typhus in the Irish countryside. It was a, a, a quite a, a, a very unsung social revolution in Ireland. And Kieran O'Neill, I mean, I, I want to bring that forward um, a bit to past independence because this process of um, dividing up land amongst the poor went on right up until the 1950s, really, um, under um, an organisation called the Land Commission, um, which continued to target big farms that maybe weren't being farmed properly. And I know in Enfield, where I'm from, people were resettled from um, the western seaboard, County Mayo, right up into to County Mead in the 30s, 40s and 50s. What consequence did that have for the country? Yeah, it's interesting you should bring that up because I think those kind of resettlement projects are very much exceptions in a sense, right? I mean, when it come to uh, came to reparceling out land that came via the Land Commission from a combination of things, estates in distress, uh, post-revolution, you see a lot of uh, major landowners leaving Ireland and, and settling in, in the UK or moving to the, to the Dublin region, selling their large properties. So in that resettlement process, which you really see uh, dominating land narratives right through the 1920s and 30s, kind of the period that you're talking about, um, what's happening there is you're seeing a sort of almost political reparceling out of, of land estates to particular groups of people. Uh, very much, um, in some senses, uh, categorised by who's in power at any one time, and and in a sense, you can see the roots of our political system and our almost the kind of, you know. Well, uh, in in me, it was always considered by blue shirts to be a Fianna Fáil conspiracy. That yeah, well, <laughs> when well, they we, were in power, they gave it to their supporters. We won't really be able to tell that until we have a good look at the archives, uh, and some of that work remains to be done. I think that's really exciting for historians looking into the future. That you know, we haven't quite got to the bottom of that politicisation of land in the free state period. We're quite happy to look at uh, Ireland under the Union and complain of British malfeasance in relation to land, but we're a little bit more queasy about looking at how we did it ourselves afterwards. Very much so. Jennifer, do you want to get in on that point? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Kieran. It is an exception, uh, interesting exceptions that people would be relocated to such different areas. We're not very brave about that in general in Ireland. I mean, I spent some time in the US and it never failed to astound me how people would move thousands of miles away from their home and think nothing of it. But it would be a big deal to move across the border for a lot of people unless you're coming to Dublin, of course. Um, though That's a very land has always always been a controversial issue who has it who wants it what's the best bit uh, how congested it is is something that continue to plague people I think part of this political narrative is the fact that Fianna Fáil in particular were very focused on the heart of Ireland being rural Ireland and the, all, all of this discourse that, that's particularly associated with de Valera about frugal comfort dancing at the crossroads we can kind of smirk at it a little bit but to a lot of people the land and rural Ireland remained very dear they did want to mm. own places that they lived they didn't want to move uh, and for them I think uh, the work of the Land Commission was was probably vital um, Callum what was going on with the people at that time? Um, well, I think before you get into that you, you can't uh, you can't overlook the importance of the disestablishment of the Church of England before this or right. the, the Church of Ireland I'm sorry and and was was that that was you know mainly to do when, with land and with power? It absolutely had a knock-on effect in terms of culture and in terms of um, who was seen to be in the positions of power. And is it true uh, that the British government was helping the Catholic Church to fund um, educational establishments at that time, Jennifer? Do you know much about well, that? The, I mean, this is really Kieran's uh, piece. I do want to say something about it in terms of how it relates to women. Yeah. Um, 
so the British government did not want to fund religious based education. But that was neither satisfactory to the Catholic Church nor actually to the Church of Ireland uh, for the most part. And then the big burning question, the three Irish questions, its land, its home rule, um, it's uh, the disestablishment of the church and education. So home rule is is later. Um, For women, what I have to do as president of Women's History Association shoehorn in here is that they're always an afterthought but they do actually gain. So some of the money that comes from the disestablishment of the church uh, is ploughed into education and women are then able to get secondary education. They're also able to access although with difficulty higher education. So you do see uh, greater concessions being made to people who wouldn't have been thought of before that. Um, are women getting the vote around this time? When does no. that start to come um, Towards the end of the 19th century, you see a gradual, a very gradual creeping in of um, women's rights in terms of voting at local level first. But, it, but it, it does make a significant difference. So women are, for example, allowed to become voted in as poor law guardians. So people who control the rates, who control the workhouses, local level things. And that gives them practice uh, about uh, and uh, what we would now call transferable skills to put into local government at the turn of the 20th century. And then they don't actually get the right to vote nationally until 1918, some of them. Uh, and then all women over 18 on the same basis as men in 1922. Dermot. I just wanted to say that when we're talking about the church, I think we have to guard against uh, um, transferring modern preconceptions back to that time. Um, the We shouldn't see the church in the late 19th century and early 20th century as somehow uh, counterposed against the people or against secular politics. The clergy were an organic part and seen as an organic part of the move of these various people's movements. If you read newspaper accounts of land league meetings in the 1880s, they always the reports always begin with the lists of, of attendees, and the first paragraph would be taken up solidly with members of the clergy, uh, far outnumbering political representatives. So the, um, there was no contradistinction between priests and people. They were see, at the only time when it became when a, a, a slight degree of separation came about was in the Parnell split when certain uh, uh, Parnellite candidates in in certain parts of the country parish priests would uh, overstep the boundary and start uh, threatening hellfire and damnation on people who might be likely to vote for Parnellite candidates and, and Parnellites who were regarded themselves as every bit as good Catholics as the anti-Parnellites, they would step in, Redmond being one of those. He got a reputation as being anti-clerical, which was far from justified. But uh, uh, they uh, they were highly indignant at the clergy overstepping that that boundary and telling people how they should vote in, in elections. But beyond that, in the all the agrarian movements and home rule movements, the priests and the right up to bishops were seen as an organic part of the... Um, and Kieran, do you want to talk a bit more about that? Uh, you know, where was the church seen as being part of a progressive movement? It depends in what in what way and for mm. who. I mean, um, yes, in relation to some. So, for example, uh, the education is a classic kind of way of describing this. So, in the eighteen seventies, we see major legislation coming through, uh, but it reveals almost, in a sense, the conservatism of Irish society. We have eighteen seventy eight, the Intermediate Education Act; eighteen seventy nine, the Universities Act. This opens up uh, secondary and higher education to a wider cachet of people. But we're still talking about one, two, three percent of the population, twenty to thirty thousand people being educated to the age of seventeen, eighteen. It's tiny, absolutely tiny. 
Uh, so when Jennifer talks about women finally coming to the fold, they are ab- absolutely at middle and upper middle class levels. Um, majority of Irish people are being educated to the age of 13, 14. And the Catholic Church is very pleased to say through its representatives, not the entire Catholic Church, of course, but someone like Cullen, if you read his correspondence, he's quite happy to say that's good enough. 13, 14, that's where the majority of the pop- population should be educated to. Uh, I, I think the quote is, and this is from memory, anything else would make them unfit for the plough. It's the idea that, you know, <laughs> yeah. you, there's no need to raise them up above their station. So I don't, I'd be very reluctant to cast any of the churches in this period as socially progressive. I think churches, well, you know, in a sense tend to be... but might that have been of its time? Absolutely. Might, that might yeah. have been seen as progressive yeah. at the time. Um, well, I, I don't think so. It depends no. where you are in the social hierarchy, I think, that question, as it does now, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Context is everything. I mean, at the time, it was extremely radical for some people to say that women could or should be educated to even secondary level, let alone third level. Um, But those women weren't necessarily trying to open the gates behind them for all other women. Mm. Um, They also didn't question the the basis of property or land qualifications being the right to vote. They only asked for the vote on the same basis of men. They didn't say, well, shouldn't we all be able to vote if we are right thinking adults? That came much later, much, much later. When did that come? Really, it was only the the very radical and socialist feminists. Mostly, they did not believe in universal suffrage because many people thought that you had to be educated to a certain extent to to exert the right to vote. And we may, we may <laughs> all debate about that agree. now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that, that really was that, that people took very seriously the rights and the responsibilities of citizenship and voting was seen as, a, as a, at the core of that. We're talking about the bloodless revolution in Ireland, the years before the 1916 rising and how much was achieved in terms of uh, social reform, land distribution, wealth distribution. Distribution and in studio talking with me on this Christmas Eve are Jennifer Redmond. She's a lecturer in history in Maynooth University and president of the Women's History Association. Kieran O'Neill lectures in history in Trinity College. He's president of the Society for the Study of 19th Century Ireland. Colin McGarrell is a PhD candidate in Trinity College and he's an expert on how history has been taught in Irish schools. And we're going to be getting on to that soon because that's the really controversial stuff here. And Dermot Malady is the author of the definitive biography of John Redmond, the leader of the Irish party after Parnell. Colin, why don't I actually come to you on that issue because one thing that struck me, my son uh, started uh, first year in secondary school this year and I got to have a peek at his um, history book. I won't say which one because I think they're all guilty of the same thing and I won't, don't want to condemn the author of this particular one. So things I noticed were there are about 15 pages on the plantations, the Ulster plantation, the Cromwellian plantation, the Munster plantation. Between the famine and 1910, there is nothing. It's simply a blank. Even before that, Daniel O'Connell doesn't get a mention. Parnell gets a brief mention. But there is nothing about all this um, uh, reform that we've been talking about. Um, Redmond is due a couple of words, mainly in relation to World War Two. And I suppose the accusation would be that when you um, extinguish all these facts from the narrative, um, you're creating a justification for a violent rebellion in 1916 because nothing had been done since the famine. So is it a fair way to teach history? I don't know how how much I'd agree that it's a fair way, but I can understand why it is that way. Um, and I, I wouldn't want to... To, to, to get the reader or the, the listenership thinking that it's purely Machiavellian to, to put forth this political uh, point of view I think that um, the issue of, of time allocation is is something that's it's far too often overlooked um, I mean historically the, the, the course was taught from you know the year dot until until 1921 as a long 
chronological story. Um, the 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 modern uh, version of the the junior cert as it is at present, it's set in three specific blocks. You'd have the you know the the first block of what it is to be an historian, the skills and ancient times. The middle block then was the Reformation and the Renaissance for the European history side of it, and then twentieth century Ireland and Europe. And whilst I I probably wouldn't agree with that because of because of everything that it's it's leaving out as you've as you've mentioned I do understand why it is that way um but can you see the consequence of it um particularly when you've got popular history so for example um there was a fantastic um documentary done that Liam Neeson narrated called 1916 which began I think in 1171 you know the yeah. <laughs> the first invasion and it went the whole way up to the <laughs> rising and it never mentioned O'Connell um, or Parnell. They left out huge amounts there. And obviously leaving the viewer with the idea that violence was the only answer. Yeah, I, I think the issue there is is uh, seeing the Irish Irish history as a as a teleological tale, as a, as a like I like to think of it, the Irish version of Butterfield's Whig interpretation of history. It's it's that we have this 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 narrative of uh, resistance after resistance after resistance. And how do you how do you bring into that story a a revolution which didn't have this resistance beforehand um i i just i don't think that you could justify claims in 1916 saying the land or the the land of ireland for the people of ireland if that land is already being doled out without this revolution uh, Jennifer Redmond, what do you think about it? Well, I, I'm not a secondary school teacher. I have tremendous respect for them, but I do know from third level, uh, legislation is just not that interesting to many <laughs> students. I'm fascinated with it because I did flirt uh, as a teenager with the idea of becoming uh, involved in the law and I went obviously a different way. Um, change by gradual process by parliamentary procedure by bills that are debated and amended not only is that less interesting than war revolution violence bloodshed romance poets artists on the streets gpo bullet wounds all the <laughs> stuff but it's actually just more more difficult to tell and that can be uh, a time issue but i i also do think we have fundamental problems with the curriculum itself i, I think though you shouldn't overlook the cognitive development of the students as well. I, I mean, we're not the the people who are who are reading the the junior cert textbook. They're they're twelve and thirteen year olds. Mm-hmm. They're you know. There's a reason why the horrible histories were so popular. Is it's because exactly like you said, mm-hmm. you can you can. It's more tangible. You can you can see this is an exciting thing, and then there was it's cause and effect. Um, yeah, we shouldn't do them a disservice either. And the horrible histories work because um, they they look a lot of the time at real people, as in imaginary, but real people and how they would have experienced big events. I think that's the best way to uh, illuminate history for that age group. Yeah, but Dermot Malady, you know, Daniel O'Connell was a real person with an extraordinary life. Parnell, can you get any more exciting yeah, than Yeah, those his... campaigns were, are, are every bit as exciting if they're told in the right way. My particular experience is more in the leaving, in teaching Leaving Cert history. I and did, how is it taught um, there? I did teach it in secondary school for about eight years. And uh, my experience was that the curriculum, I mean, a, a lot of thought went into the curriculum. I, which uh, um, I think um, came in around the year 2000. But I'm, I'm just looking at the, the uh, you can see the unconscious preconceptions just arising in 
the very way that the topics are organised. If you look at on the later modern um, uh, Irish history, you have topic two, which is called Movements for Political and Social Reform, 1870 to 1914. So that period ends in 1914. The following period begins in 1912. It's called Pursuit of Sovereignty and the Impact of Partition. So you have one period ending in 1914 and the other next period beginning in 1912. There's a slight overlap. Mm. And yet... In, in neither period is the Irish Parliamentary Party, which was the sole democratic representative of the Irish na- nationalist electorate for 17 years. Nowhere is it mentioned. It falls through the crack between the two periods. You've got in, in the first period, you've got the Home Rule movement is certainly mentioned and its leaders, but um, Parnell and Redmond. And Redmond is there with Parnell as a key personality. But they're swamped by all the other interesting topics of that earlier period the like the land agitation and the cooperative movement and so on the Gaelic League and the GAA which are very important phenomena and then in the period coming after it which begins in 1912 we're suddenly into the volunteers and 1960 and everything there is kind of pointing in the direction of the rebellion which is a way of it's a very very strong preconception but somebody once said uh um, I can't claim originality in this, but the backward glance isolates precursors. Every th- when you look back, when you uh, start your focus by looking at the rebellion, you s- you then start looking back and seeing, well, uh, um, where did all those people come from? Who were their friends? And then, so that brings you back to the Gaelic League, the GAA, the Cultural Nationalist Movement. But they were simply not necessary precursors of the rebellion. The rebellion was hatched, um, you know, in the back of a tobacconist's shop by seven people. You know, uh, and they told nobody. They didn't even tell fellow IRB members. There was no necessary fu- uh, 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 fruition, if you like, of those earlier cultural movements in a rebellion. Um, Kieran O'Neill. <laughs> so, how do you look back at it now? Was rebellion inevitable and necessary, or had it not taken place? Would these reforms that had been achieved by the Irish Party? Um, have continued on and gradually freedom would have come uh, peacefully and incrementally. I'm not a what if sort of historian. Oh, but go uh, on, it's so no, much fun. No, I know it's fun and it's fun <laughs> It's fun in some senses to debate these things with our students, you know, kind of in, at, at third level. It's interesting. I mean, people naturally respond to the major headline acts of Irish history. So we very often progress from the famine to 1916. These are, if we walk into Hodges figures or any bookshop around the country, uh, what you'll see selling are books that are predominantly 1916 focused, especially this year. You know, there's a, a big popular interest because of the centenary. Um, and likewise with the famine. These are reliable selling topics. So we see the same conservatism um, and, uh, I suppose, uh, labelling coming into our, our curriculum and into popular interest in general. So teachers are being led partly by the conservatism of a curriculum. Uh, but they're also being led by that's what people are interested in. These are the things that grab people's attention. So instead of uh, bemoaning the fact, what we can do is use these big uh, behemoths of Irish history to sort of ask new questions. So instead of working teleologically and saying, oh, revolution was inevitable. Well, nothing is inevitable, you know, and there's 20 different ways, if not 2,000 different ways to read the revolution and everything that happened there. Mm. Uh, let's start to do that. Let's start to, to pick back through the threads of history and see what, what might have happened, what's latent in Irish society, why some of the incongruous things that happened in the 1920s and 30s in in the so-called kind of free Ireland of the South or the free Ireland of the North 
why they stand out to us, you know? And these questions, I think, are, are really important. And it's that kind of um, autonomy that I'd like to see history teachers in, in the secondary school be allowed. They're, they're being restricted by a very conservative um, curriculum and, and we should free them up to be able to interpret how, how would that work? Because I did speak to one of the authors of uh, one of the, the junior search history books and he said, look, we can only put in what's asked in the exam and there's no parent in the country would forgive teachers. Actually, Jennifer, I'll put that to you um, if they start talking about mm. stuff that isn't going to be in the exam. So how do you give freedom to teachers? Well, it's not only what's in the exam, but what's expected to be answered and the way it's expected to be answered. So uh, with all due respect, I'd actually disagree with you about the roots of the... Which Dermot. Yeah, I would, because um, uh, I don't think it's coincidental that a lot of these people were interested in culture, language, feminism, labor activism. I think it all ferments together. But that's that's an argument for a different day. But teachers are not allowed really time for that complexity and that nuance. Um, There is a right and a wrong answer. And that is a, a dangerous way, I think, to teach history, because certain people feel empowered by their understanding or their answer and, and empowered to belittle others who don't agree with them. That that can be dangerous. I, as a teacher of third level students, I'm frustrated a lot of the time when we see first years who are afraid to tell us their own opinion because they have been, uh, what's been modeled to them in Leaving Cert and all, all the way from Junior Cert on is a soundbite kind of an answer, a right and wrong answer. There's no nuance. They can forget or ignore things that they haven't been told and then feel very challenged and sometimes kind of angry when you tell them new information or new perspectives Mm. or you say, I'm not going to tell you that this is the only way to interpret this thing. We actually almost need to retrain them. So, Colin, we were talking there just before the break about, um, you know, how history is taught and, you know, there are right or wrong answers and it's all very strict. But, you know, that doesn't just have a consequence on students sitting their exams. That has a consequence on the wider population and the political views that they might have today. That if rebellion was justified and necessary 100 years ago, well, maybe its political descendants are justified and necessary in what they had to do in more recent times. Absolutely. I mean, one thing, though, that... I think we haven't really touched upon and yeah. that's, that's it's the issue of interest both of the teacher and the pupil um, so outside you know examinations aside um, you know, there's 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 generally a tendency that when you're in class and this is from my own experience as a student and my, my brief experiences as in, in teaching you know you can have the information you can have your syllabus but I mean if you're not interested in topic that's it's not going to sell that what you are most interested in is what will grab people's attention and if we have if, if teachers have gone through a system in which the military and political history is seen as most interesting, then that's what will be most interesting to them and that's what they'll put forward to the next generation. And so what I I think that a lot of this issue of, well, maybe we're not talking about the, the late 19th century and the, the social revolution, the land acts. I think a lot of that is a generational thing that, you know, history teachers have gone through this and they've gone through third level and done their HDIP or the PME as it's now called. And most of that doesn't include social history. It's only recently that yeah. that social history is a, is a is a trend in in university. So they levels. don't even know about it in the first place. Never mind, not be required to teach it. Well, I mean, if you go through a a very strict uh, junior cert uh, curriculum, and this is what you learn, and then you do something uh, a very intense period in leaving cert, and then in your your university, you you do a political Ireland, you know, mm. Irish political history going the way through. You probably you wouldn't have have dealt with it. 
So Dermot Malidi, do you think it's important, not because of what people are necessarily learning in school or for the exam, but because of how it affects politics today and what people believe today is the uh, effective uh, way to achieve things? Yes, I, I do really. Um, what's missing from, again, I'm only speaking about the Leaving Cert curriculum. Uh, what's missing is one political narrative and what's there is very much an, another political narrative. And maybe, I mean, a lot of this is inevitable because a national, every state when it's born creates a national narrative and our state was no exception to that. And the national narrative was based on what had followed on from the rebellion and the people who fought that rebellion. But what is left out of of that narrative is the fact that they were a tiny minority and that there had been a a pre-existing political movement based on a democratic representation of the people, a limit, uh, admittedly on a limited franchise, one third of the franchise that was uh, uh, later put there in, in 1918. But nevertheless, the nearest thing to a, a democratic uh, expression of, of the people's will that existed. And that was there right up to 1916. And then the national narrative created after that simply obliterated it. And I, I think this does have political consequences today. Because uh, we have the phenomenon of what, well, during the the IRA campaign in Northern Ireland, were called sneaking regarders. I mean, you could break it down roughly that uh, in terms of support for the IRA in this state, you might say 2% were the active supporters. 20% were people who would be willing to give passive support to um, the violent Republican movement in Northern Ireland. And uh, that had quite a lot of significance in prolonging the war, as the IRA like to call it. Kieran O'Neill, do you yeah. want to come in on that? Yeah, I mean, all these things are, are, are valid, uh, as Dermot says. I mean, I think if you look at the, the curriculum that we, we're kind of being focused on in this section, there are so many things missing from the junior cert and leaving cert that they're absolutely worth mentioning. Uh, in Ireland in the late 19th century, we have a country that's characterised by migration. We have... Forty uh, percent of the people who were born in Ireland in eighteen ninety are living outside of Ireland. We have forty percent. Forty percent. Yeah, I mean, six point five million people leave in the stretch between eighteen fifty one and nineteen fourteen. Most of those people who were born are living somewhere out there in a kind of Irish world. There's no sense of that. No sense of a broader uh, impinging of the outside world on this curriculum. It's very island focused. Uh, another thing that's absent from it, no sense of a language shift. We have 4 million Irish language speakers on the island before 1841. We have 650,000 at the end of the 19th century. Right. It's a collapse, an absolute collapse. But the single biggest missing uh, element of this course uh, is uh, is women, right? There is no focus on that 50% of the population who are disenfranchised. Uh, you know, there's no way for... 50% of our present school population to model themselves backwards into Irish history. There's no sense of balance uh, in general I'll here. come to Jennifer on that, but I want to go back to, I mean, the way you've described what was happening in those years is so dramatic. Like those millions of people just disappearing, most never to be heard from again, the language collapsing. We've talked about how making people landowners made them conservative, the rise of the church. How do you think those changes in the 19th century formed us in the 20th century into what people see as a very repressive society that we were running ourselves, you know, supposedly free from our oppressor? 
Well, I mean, there's lots of kind of flippant ways to answer that and say how many of our migrants came back. So think about that for a start. Why did 50% of our uh, migrant population, why were they female in, in contradistinction to most outgoing populations from Europe? Why did people want to leave Ireland? So turn the, turn the thing backwards. So, sorry, you're saying it was unusual that so many women left a country. Normally totally when people emigrate, it's the men. Is that uh, it? Yeah, that's the wow. general pattern across the great European migration is uh, cluster migration, male first, female later. In the Irish case, 50%. Uh, almost 50% female. So, you, I mean, you're seeing all sorts of things that are deeply, that uh, you know, will cause you to ask deep questions about Irish society and make you, as you just have, query our present society. And that's the value of history. I mean, if you think about present migration uh, patterns for Irish diaspora, look how overwhelmingly focused they are on former white colonies of the British Empire. Look at the way we go to Australia. Look at the way we go to Canada. Look at the way we go to North America. We go there because we have cluster patterns of migration uh, in the Anglophone world because we speak English. All these things are uh, absolutely the outcome of this second half of the 19th century. You cannot understand uh, the country you're sitting in without understanding that period. Jennifer, what's your view on that? The impact of that massive change mm. in the 19th century on yeah. 20th century. Ireland. I teach a lot about this because I'm a migration historian primarily, actually. And uh, Kieran's absolutely right. Um, single, young, single Irish women are absolutely um, unique in comparison to any other group. So we have about over 40 million people moving in a 100 year period across Europe, mainly to West, mainly to uh, North America. And Ireland stands out as sending young, single female women. And I think it's absolutely right to ask, why were they going? Their opportunities were diminishing in Ireland significantly. We have a change uh, in uh, marriage patterns, which disadvantages a lot of uh, young people. But women, you know, given that they don't have a strong economic um, identity like men, they can't work in a lot of um, jobs like men can, they're the ones going. Uh, So they don't have marriage opportunities. They don't have opportunities to stay. There is a small window of opportunity for really elite women uh, to take advantage of education and the professions opening up. But that all of that, those patterns of change affect us hugely. I mentioned earlier that people have talked about the landholding revolution as a conservative one, because who's left are the, the ones who could stay. Uh, the ones who are, have the money to purchase their land, because we haven't discussed it, but you actually had to have quite a hefty deposit. We, we know all about that these days, but you did yeah. for a lot of the, the period of land transformation. That's not going to touch the lowest uh, working classes, peasant classes, the ones who probably need help the most. That that comes much later. So you so have a you society say, that's quite conservative. Uh, yeah, so that was going to be my thing. So would you say is that where conservative Ireland was born? In, mm. in through because of those patterns. Well, when people time. make gains, they don't want to lose them. So, I mean, that was actually the entire strategy behind a lot of the land purchase acts. If you make people happy in Ireland, if you pacify Ireland, they will stop agitating for political independence. They will be satisfied under the union. And I think a large swathe of people were, which is why they had to have this, you know, hugely energizing process again to get people involved in the home rule movement because they had got what they wanted. They got their land. What was the point of disagreement between uh, two uh, two different? I mean, uh, Dylan, the deputy leader of the Irish party, was very much of that way of thinking. He feared land purchase um, because of the possible effects it would have in defusing national sentiment. Redmond always uh, felt the other way and felt that uh, that la- uh, national feeling was a distinct thing which would survive 
even when uh, tenants became landowners. And was um, he proved right in that? I, I think that uh, on balance, I think Redmond was proved right. I think the they sentiment in favour of home rule was just as strong 10 years after Wyndham's Land Act. Uh, it certainly made, made landowners uh, socially conservative. It gave them a stake in the country and it defused land agitation. But I don't think it defused nationalist agitation. Um, can we go back to the what was going on with the church then at this time and its increasing control over society? You know, how did that change from pre-1916 to post-1916? And, you know, Dermot was talking earlier about priests being involved, you know, in the Parnell election and that. What was their connection with Sinn Féin, with the leaders of the Free State? You know, how close was that involvement uh, between their um, objectives? Um, People were genuinely religious. There's a huge debate about the devotional revolution. Did the famine scare people into being more religious or not? But I mean, once we got the chance to be independent, we had the chance to express our true ideals. And the people who the politicians were genuinely religious. Mm -hmm. They they saw it as the perfect opportunity to express their own Catholic beliefs in legislation for the first time. It was a it was a triumph. But one thing I want to come back to about explaining one of the theories that I find very persuasive explaining the rising was it inevitable why did it happen did it happen is uh, advanced by David Fitzpatrick one of your colleagues in Trinity College who points to the fact that migration was stopped during this period because of the First World War which also gets scant mention in uh, textbooks and I find that terrible Uh, and that to some people's minds explains it a lot because it stops the people who would have been the most dissatisfied with economic or social or political uh, Ireland at the time. It stops them leaving. So what do they do? They stay and they plot revolution. They become the most radical leaders and they are tiny numbers. But the big what if, and you like to play this game is, would the revolution have happened if it wasn't for the First World War? And uh, Dermot, that's so funny because people talk about that in the present day. If Ireland didn't have emigration now, would the young people who would have inevitably been unemployed stayed and got involved in much more radical politics and changed the nature of our government now? I think we have to come back to the fact about 1,500 people uh, turned up for the rebellion in Dublin, maybe a few hundred others in different places around the country. I really don't see that, that that an entire generation plotted rebellion. They certainly, by, by the 1918 general election, um, the, the, the legacy of the, the restriction on, emigra- on uh, emigration was showing and the, the, the Irish party was destroyed, if you like, by Sinn Féin in that general election, largely because, or at least partly because, of a, the young electorate who had stayed in Ireland. But... Um, that, they were simply voting for a, a Sinn Féin that they only barely understood. Sinn Féin leaders themselves in 1918 were, t- were saying, in fact, uh, Father Michael O'Flanagan, who was on the executive, said, we have, uh, Sinn Féin has won the election. Now we have to go and explain to the people what Sinn Féin is. So <laughs> they didn't actually, they, there was just a general vague feeling that they represented some form of more radical independence than home rule had represented. But... The idea that a revolution was um, kind of inherent in the fact that uh, that a generation of young people didn't leave the country, I don't buy that. Uh, okay. it, it could have it could have gone in many different directions. They were they were the people who voted in nineteen eighteen were reacting to a situation uh, 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 created by first of all 
the late the aftermath of the rebellion and secondly by partition a hugely oh, yeah. the most in my mind the most uh, important issue in bringing down the Irish party the fact that they could deliver home rule but they could not as they had promised deliver it for 32 counties Okay I'm, I'm coming to the end of the show now I'm going to give the last word to Colin McGarth because you know how history is taught in Irish schools is your thing do you think is it justifiable that so much of this part of history is left out of the curriculum that it shapes our politics today and really the department needs to have a closer look at this and, and include some of the events from that time. Yeah, I, I don't think it is justifiable because it, it, it the, the curriculum that is there now puts forth a specific narrative. And and as we said, it starts at, if it starts at 1900, we, we've just discussed for nearly an hour now of, you know, all of these massively important things that happened in the 50 years previous to this. And to, to ignore that or to exclude it from a specific story is then telling a very different uh, narrative and what I would say is I don't think it is done from you know as an intentionally political move um, and I don't I don't justify it at all but what I'll say is that by omitting certain aspects of this history they are creating an al- an alternate narrative and you can shape history as much by what you leave out from what you include Okay well Colin McGarrelt Kieran O'Neill, Jennifer Redmond and Dermot Malidi, many thanks for joining me this morning. Thanks to the production team, Aidan McKelvey and Stephen Jordan. Thank you for listening. And from everyone here on the show, we wish you a very happy and peaceful new year.